from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Janice, Thomas, Pahoten, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. And shout out to Doc, who was an incredible help with the researching of this case. Thanks, Doc. Today's podcast will be on Krista Pike, so let's get into it. Krista Gail Pike was born on March 10th, 1976 in Durham, North Carolina. And as we always do, to get some context as to the world she was born into, let's get into some history for that time. In 1976, the president of Argentina, Isabel Perón, was overthrown by a military coup. She was the third wife of Juan Perón, who had been the Argentine president during the 40s and 50s, and then again from 1973 to 1974, after being forced into exile for 18 years. After his death, Isabel took over, making her the first female president in the world. Iceland and the United Kingdom came to an agreement over fishing rights in the North Atlantic during June 1976, ending a series of conflicts known as the Cod Wars. The outcome of the wars proved to be positive for Iceland, but somewhat devastating for British fishing communities. The terms of the agreement stated that fishing enterprises from the United Kingdom would have to stay specific distances away from Iceland's fishing regions and would be excluded from using some of the best fishing regions in the North Atlantic. The world's first recorded Ebola virus epidemic began in Sudan, Africa this year. 
Palestinian extremists hijacked an Air France plane in Greece with 246 passengers and 12 crew. They took it to Uganda, where Israeli commandos stormed the plane, freeing the hostages. In Guatemala and Honduras, an earthquake killed more than 22,000, and Fidel Castro became the president of Cuba. But on a lighter note, in the United States, the boxing movie Rocky was released, written and starring Sylvester Stallone. It was a box office success. The U.S. Viking One lander landed on Mars safely. Its mission was to land on the Martian surface in order to conduct scientific experiments and take photos. It remained operational until NASA lost contact six years later. Austria hosted the Winter Olympic Games. Howard Hughes died this year. And finally, the son of Sam, a.k.a. David Berkowitz, committed his first murder and began a series of attacks that terrorized New York City for the next year. Some other people born this year were actor Colin Farrell, Reese Witherspoon, Alicia Silverstone, and the whole world's boyfriend, Ryan Reynolds. So this was the atmosphere that Krista was born into. Her parents were Glenn Pike and Carissa Hansen. Krista has an older half-sister named Alicia through her mother. Now, Glenn and Carissa married in 1975, and Krista was born the next year. Now, Carissa was a party girl already, a pretty serious alcoholic, just as her own abusive mother had been, and she continued to drink during her pregnancy with Krista. In court documents, as Carissa was a nurse, she explained an incident where, while working the evening shift on a psychiatric unit, a, quote, alcoholic with delirium, end quote, was admitted, and that patient threw Carissa through some double-swinging doors, causing her to land on a supply cart, and as a result of this, she stated she began leaking amniotic fluid and was put on bed rest. Carissa still went into premature labor, and Krista was born prematurely via C-section. Carissa stated in court documents that Krista had been born with a condition known as hyaline membrane disease, sometimes called infant respiratory distress syndrome, where the lungs are not fully developed due to being premature, and bilateral hip dysplasia, meaning her hip sockets were not fully formed. Krista had to be taken to Charleston Area Medical Center Neonatal Intensive Care Unit, where she received care for two weeks. In addition to these issues, it is known that Krista also was born with organic brain damage and a malformation of the brain, particularly the frontal lobes, which was caused by the alcohol abuse her mother had during her pregnancy. And really, the signs of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder began displaying during Krista's infancy in the form of seizures. Glenn and Carissa divorced after two short years of marriage when Krista was still a baby, were divorced for one year, then got remarried for another two years before divorcing again. While they were together, they lived in Beckley, West Virginia. The second divorce would have been around the time when Krista was roughly four years old. 
Krista's aunt would later testify that the little girl had not really been able to form that oh-so-important bond with Carissa because she spent a great deal of her time with her maternal grandmother, you know, the one who had also been an abusive alcoholic. This was the result of her mother moving to be near her own mother while she was ill for a bit of time, or at least that's what she said. But Carissa had also married another man at this point, and being unwilling to put aside her own selfish wishes, Krista and her older sister would spend most of their time with their grandparents. Now, it was said that the grandfather worked or owned a slaughterhouse, and that this would have sometimes been young Krista's playground, according to testimony from family members. And in case perhaps some of my international children do not know what a slaughterhouse is, it's basically a facility where animals are processed to provide food. Family members also stated that young Krista was exposed to, quote, twisted images on her television screen where pornography and horror flicks were routinely played, end quote. One must assume she would have seen this while with her mother, but I could find no clarification. Her mother would say that by the time Krista was eight years old, she was, quote, incorrigible, meaning her behavior was, in the opinion of her mother, incapable of being corrected or amended. Her mother was indicating that she was badly behaved as a child, and the moving back and forth between her mother's, her father's, and her grandmother's house did her no favors. At the tender age of nine years old, Krista was raped by a man who had been a neighbor, and this incident was failed to be reported, and there was no action taken against the signs of abuse. But sexual abuse was nothing new to this girl, she had been sexually abused since she was two years old. Wrap your mind around that, guys. Her mother also said she had been growing marijuana plants in her room at the age of nine, but I personally find that hard to believe, though not impossible, I suppose. Again, her aunt later testified that she would not allow her own children to play with Krista for fear of her behavior and the fact that Carissa, quote, lived in a filthy home with no ground rules, end quote. However, these same family members who were happy to point fingers to judge and act shocked did absolutely nothing to help the girl. So keep that in mind as well. While the exact year varies just a bit, it was said that the grandmother died when Krista was somewhere around 11 to 12 years old, and this was quite distressing to the young girl. She allegedly attempted to take her own life by overdosing on Tylenol. It was at this point that she was diagnosed with depression, and yet there was no mention of her receiving any proper treatment for this. And then sources said that she attempted to take her life a second time at 13 years old, as she said she felt her grandmother had been the only kind and nurturing person in her life, though it was said that her grandmother had been abusive. Also at the tender age of 13, Krista was sexually assaulted by one of her mother's boyfriends. And yet another boyfriend actually was arrested and went to court for punching Krista at this age. And so, 
The teen was removed from her mother's home by Children's Services, but was placed back in the home after only three months with hardly any follow-up to ensure that she was okay. At some point in her teens, sources said she developed bipolar disorder and suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome as a result of the abuse she had endured from her grandmother, her mother, and her father that she occasionally lived with. And when mental health professionals would suggest she get follow-up care and treatment, neither of her parents bothered to take her to follow-up appointments. And of course, it would appear no agencies followed up on why Krista was even missing appointments. Carissa's excuse, according to court documents, was that whatever medication Krista had been prescribed made her feel worse, so she just quit taking them, and that was that. There were stories of Krista having a live-in boyfriend at the age of 14, and while I couldn't find what specific age she was when this occurred, I heavily suspect it was during this time, however, Krista became pregnant. Her mother told her that if she had the baby, she would have to get a job. Krista went on to have an abortion. So Carissa said that it was during Krista's sort of mid-teen years that she decided she wanted to try to form a friendship, air quotes, with her daughter. And out of all possible ways to work on a developing, healthy bond with her teen, she landed on smoking marijuana with her. Of course, it was said that this could also have been a means of apologizing to Krista after Carissa's then-current paramour had beaten Krista severely with a belt. Krista began repeatedly running away from home, her home with her mother, as well as her father's home, and due to this, along with her constantly skipping school, Carissa testified that Krista went to live in a group facility on two separate occasions. As Krista turned 16 years old, she was sent to a juvenile facility for roughly a year. Her father, Glenn, stated that he had been forced to kick Krista out of his home twice while she was edging closer to her later teens because there had been an allegation that she had sexually abused his two-year-old daughter from his second marriage. He described her as disobedient, dishonest, and manipulative. It was reported that she lied and stole from her mother often. Krista's behavior was so out of control that she eventually quit high school and obtained her GED. At 18 years old, she had been raped twice in her life, abused by numerous members of her family, and sexually assaulted by at least three separate individuals. Dr. Jonathan Pincus, who is a professor of neurology at Georgetown University, stated, quote, Krista suffered an almost unbearably abusive background, end quote. And that was her childhood. There is quite a bit to unpack, so let's get to it. The elephant in the room is the consumption of alcohol that Carissa did while she was pregnant with Krista. There is no known safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy. There is no safe time for alcohol use during pregnancy. And all types of alcohol are equally harmful to the fetus. Drinking alcohol during pregnancy, according to the NHS, increases the risk of miscarriage, 
premature birth, and your baby having a low birth weight. Drinking while pregnant can cause the baby to develop a serious condition called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You see, the unborn baby cannot process the alcohol well at all, meaning it can stay in the body for a long time. It can damage their brain and body and stop them from developing normally in the womb. If the pregnancy is not altogether lost, the infants who survive may be left with lifelong problems called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, such as movement, balance, and hearing problems. They may very well have cognitive problems, problems with thinking, concentration, and memory, managing their emotions and developing social skills, displaying hyperactivity and impulse control issues, and issues with speech and communication. They often have joint, muscle, bone, and organ damage, usually affecting the kidneys and heart, and these problems are permanent. The seizures that baby Krista experienced were also most likely due to the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and have been observed in 3 to 21% of these children. And then we have the aunt who described the very real lack of natural bond between infant and mother or closest caregivers. So normally babies develop a close attachment bond with their main caregiver within the first months of life. If they are in a situation where they do not receive normal love and care, they cannot develop this close bond. This may result in a condition called attachment disorder. It usually happens to babies and children who have been neglected or abused or who are in care or separated from their parents for some reason. The effect of not having this bond causes problems with behavior and in dealing with emotions and new situations. This can cause effects which carry right on through childhood and into their adult life. Signs of a baby developing an attachment disorder include the baby crying inconsolably or the caregiver doesn't seem to react to the baby when the child is distressed. The mother or carer doesn't respond to the baby's needs and the carer also doesn't seem to smile at the baby or have a lot of eye contact. The baby or child may not turn to their primary caregiver during times of upset the child will avoid being touched or comforted. They tend not to smile or respond when interacting with an adult, and they tend to not show any affection towards their caregiver. Then there are the situations in which it would seem quite typical for the child to get upset at some stimuli, and yet they do not get upset at all. They typically do not play with toys or engage in interactive games with others. The child has difficult aggressive behavior towards other children or adults, and they also might withdraw. The child is most often anxious, fearful, or depressed, is unable to control their temper or anger, typically does not do very well at school, and by the time the attachment disordered child reaches their teen years, they may be more likely to be in trouble with the law. They usually display anxiety, depression, or phobias, and there are actually a few different kinds of attachment disorders, which I did a true crime science podcast on, and I'll link it in the notes if you're interested. 
And then, of course, she endured a childhood full of sexual abuse starting around the age of two. Childhood sexual abuse is a subject that has received much attention in recent years. 28 to 33% of women and 12 to 18% of men were victims of childhood or adolescent sexual abuse. Childhood sexual abuse has been correlated with higher levels of depression, guilt, shame, self-blame, eating disorders, somatic concerns, anxiety, dissociative patterns, repression, denial, sexual problems, and relationship problems. Depression has been found to be the most common long-term symptom among survivors. Survivors may have difficulty in externalizing the abuse, thus thinking negatively about themselves. After years of negative self-thoughts, survivors can have feelings of worthlessness and avoid others because they believe they have nothing to offer. The victims describe the symptoms of child sexual abuse survivors' depression to be feeling down much of the time, having suicidal ideation, having disturbed sleeping patterns, and having disturbed eating patterns. Survivors often experience guilt, shame, and self-blame. It has been shown that survivors frequently take personal responsibility for their abuse. When the sexual abuse is done by an esteemed, trusted adult, it may be hard for the children to view the perpetrator in a negative light, thus leaving them incapable of seeing what happened as not their fault. Survivors often blame themselves and internalize negative messages about themselves. Survivors tend to display more self-destructive behaviors and experience more suicidal ideation than those who have not been abused. It was said that at some point in her teens, she developed a bipolar disorder and suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome as a result of the abuse she had endured. Now, I didn't see what doctor specifically diagnosed her with these two, but they are pretty serious diagnoses. Bipolar disorder is something most of us are quite familiar with. It causes extreme mood swings that include emotional highs, mania or hypomania, and lows, depression. But the experience of bipolar is uniquely personal. No two people have exactly the same experience. Post-traumatic stress disorder is another one most of us are familiar with and is a mental health condition that is triggered by a terrifying event, either experiencing it or witnessing it. Symptoms are rough and may include flashbacks, nightmares, and severe anxiety, as well as uncontrollable thoughts about the event. Some even experience physical sensations such as pain, swelling, nausea, or trembling. And there's obviously more to these two issues, but you get the idea. Even though Krista was experiencing this abuse and neglect, unable to form that all-important bond with her mother, sexual abuse, being born with very real issues due to her mother's drinking, the back and forth living with various family members and not being able to plant real roots anywhere for any length of time, all of these issues would accumulate to a potentially very dangerous individual indeed. So let's get back into the story. 
So when Krista dropped out of high school and earned her GED, which is the high school equivalent for those who might not know, she decided to join the Job Corps, which is a government program aimed at helping low-income youths by offering vocational training and career skills. The students usually live on campus or at the facility. The types of things typically trained there are accounting services, certain types of construction, advanced auto diesel collision repair, advanced culinary arts, computer systems administration, energy management, advanced electrical, forestry technician, truck driving, nursing, machining, and more. Court documents state that Krista joined to learn to be a nursing assistant, though I did see one source that said otherwise. But she began studying at the campus in Knoxville, Tennessee in the fall of 1994. Now, her mother did make the effort to visit her daughter a few times while she was at the school and met some of the friends Krista had made, even getting a tour of the school and the dorms. It is interesting to note that Carissa noted that the dorms were, quote, dirty, all things considered. She testified, quote, there was graffiti painted on the walls. There was blood on the walls. And Krista told me that there had been a boy stabbed in the bathroom like the weekend before, I think. And the blood was still there. And that's when we tried to talk Krista into coming home with us. But she wanted to stay, end quote. Krista pretty quickly made friends with a boy a year older than her, Tadaryl Ship. I wasn't immediately able to find anything about Tadaryl's childhood, though I did see some interviews with him in prison, but the audio quality was just not enough for me to completely make out what was being said. What stood out, though, was that he had apparently been into the occult and alleged satanic worship since he was 10 years old. Tadaryl said that, at first, he and Krista had just become friends on the Job Corps campus, but that it did blossom into a relationship. Krista herself had told her mother during the Christmas break that semester that a girl on campus had threatened her, but that Tadaryl, who allegedly kept a shrine to Satan in his dorm room, would protect her. This girl was 19-year-old Colleen Slimmer. Krista had brought crystals home with her and told her mother that Tadaryl, quote, could make the clouds move and make the sky open up with the crystals, end quote. Her mother took notice of a small cartoon devil tattoo on Krista's chest, but it didn't come across as wicked or evil. But the takeaway was that Krista, too, took up an interest in the occult and devil worship, supposedly. Well, Krista came to believe that Colleen was trying to steal her boyfriend and was running her mouth, air quotes, and the two girls had some tension. Krista later stated that she felt Colleen was deliberately provoking her because Colleen realized that Krista could be kicked out of the program if she got caught up in another fight or incident. So when Krista returned from Christmas break, she had made her mind up that Colleen had to be taught a lesson. She and another girl devised a plan. So on the evening of January 12th, 1995, Krista asked Colleen to go with her to the Blockbuster Music Store. And as they were walking, she told Colleen that she had a bag of weed hidden in Tyson Park. 
And though Krista refused to name the other people involved in the incident, which turned out to be to Daryl and another girl, she said the group began walking that way. Upon arriving at a steam plant on the agricultural campus of the University of Tennessee, Krista and Colleen exchanged words. They ended up in a very secluded area, away from any prying eyes, having a verbal altercation about Krista believing Colleen was trying to steal her boyfriend. Colleen was then forced to remove her shirt and bra as Krista pulled out a box knife and began stabbing and cutting Colleen relentlessly all over her exposed flesh. She also used a meat cleaver and slashed at the crotch of the pants that she was wearing. It was later determined that the 19-year-old Colleen had endured hundreds of stab wounds all over her body, slashing her throat all while she was still alive. Colleen begged for her life, pleading to be released and promising not to go to the police if they would just simply let her go. Krista later recalled saying, quote, shut up. I don't want to hear you talking to me. You know, it's harder to hurt somebody when they're talking to you, end quote. Colleen, at one point, did get up and attempt to escape, but she was forced back to the ground. The hair tie she had been using to hold her hair up was removed from her hair and stuffed in her mouth to silence her screams. Krista and Tadaryl then began cutting a rough pentagram into Colleen's chest, and again, she was still alive. After about 40 minutes of this, Krista picked up a large chunk of asphalt and began smashing her head with it over and over. And then finally, after an hour of indescribable torture and terror, Colleen died. Krista had managed to bash a hole in the side of Colleen's head and she, quite literally, bent down, fished through the hair, blood, and tissue and pulled out a fragment of the girl's skull. She placed this in her jacket pocket as a souvenir. Now, I'm not suggesting you do this or seek this out in any form or fashion. There does exist crime scene photos about this on the site Murderpedia, if you so choose to go look. But I warn you, if you are a little squeamish, I highly recommend you leave those alone. And then the trio left the scene and went back to their own campus. Now, another student had been aware of the drama between Krista to Daryl and Colleen, and later, the same night of the murder, Krista produced the piece of skull and admitted to murdering Colleen. She told the other female student, in grotesque detail, exactly what they had done to her. This student would later testify that while Krista was talking about this, she was dancing around in a circle, smiling and singing. The next day, Krista confessed her murder to yet another student. She pointed at some brown spots on her shoes, clarifying that it wasn't mud, it was blood. She also showed this student the fragment of skull, so proud she was of her kill. However, the next day, the body was discovered and the police were summoned. 
One of the officers found it difficult to make out Colleen's features as she had been so mutilated. And the coroner determined her cause of death was, quite literally, drowning in her own blood from the blunt force trauma to the head, causing the internal bleeding to go into her lungs. So again, she was very much alive for nearly all of her attack. It didn't take long at all for the authorities to connect Krista to the crime. They were able to get her jacket with the skull fragment still inside the pocket. During her police interview, she confessed to her crimes and consented to have her dorm room searched where they found her blood-soaked jeans. She also accompanied the police to the crime scene where she retraced her steps in grotesque detail. Her confession is 46 pages long, might I add. Psychiatrist examined her and found her to be a, quote, extremely bright young woman. Her IQ tested at 111, which the clinicians found remarkable. The battery of tests found that Krista was diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder. BPD is a mental disorder characterized by unstable moods, behavior, and relationships. Symptoms are usually emotional instability, feelings of worthlessness, insecurity, impulsivity, and impaired social relationships. A person with BPD may experience intense mood swings and feel uncertainty about how they see themselves. Their feelings for others can change quickly and swing from extreme closeness to extreme dislike, which can lead to unstable relationships and emotional pain. I also did a true crime science podcast where I spoke on this and others in the cluster B of personality disorders, and I will also link that one in the notes. Dr. Pincus testified during her trial that an MRI revealed a small heterotopia. A heterotopia is caused by clumps of gray matter being located in the wrong part of the brain during fetal development. He attributed this to, quote, some maternal factor. The mother was exposed to radiation or she was ill, end quote. He stated that the most common cause of the heterotopia was a mother's exposure to alcohol. Dr. Pincus testified that mental retardation and epilepsy are associated with a heterotopia. Dr. Pincus related that this affected the frontal lobes and explained that a person could have an IQ of 120 or 130 and be a, quote, social imbecile due to the frontal lobe disease. He stated that the petitioners or Krista's frontal lobes are not put together properly. He related that it was significant that Krista's heterotopia was visible on the MRI because most are invisible. He stated that an important feature of the frontal lobes is, quote, moral and ethical standards. He explained that human beings are not born with an ethical or moral sense. You are born with a capacity to develop one, but they must be exposed to the right influences in order for that to happen, end quote. And still, with all of this information, Krista was sentenced to death by electric chair for the murder of Colleen. To Daryl and the other girl got their own reduced sentences. 
She is the youngest woman to be sentenced to death in the United States. She attempted a prison escape in 2012 with the help of a corrections officer. She had been riding a male fan on the outside for some time. This male fan also has a website where he sells things she sends him for money, much to the horror of Colleen's mother, who has tried desperately to stop this as murderers are not supposed to profit from their crimes, but so far she has unfortunately not been able to. In 2020, the Attorney General's office requested the Tennessee Supreme Court to set an actual execution date for Krista, but due to COVID, they argued they would need more time to argue that she shouldn't be put to death. And so, she still awaits her execution on death row. Krista is soon to be 47 years old as of this recording. Here is a quote from Krista herself. Quote, I had more than my fair share of trauma growing up, and I realized that so many others have that didn't commit violent crimes. I don't use that or anything else as an excuse for what I did. There is no excuse for what I did. I take full responsibility for my actions and regret everything that happened that night. If I could take it back, I would. And not only to get myself out of prison, I know that's what a lot of people assume. I've already spent a lifetime in here and I have no expectations of ever leaving these fences. That's not what this is about. I only want my situation to be looked at now through the eyes of logic instead of anger and answered the question of if I deserve to die for a crime committed by three people, I'm not even close to being the same person I was over 25 years ago, end quote. So with the horrible childhood Krista endured and being, if I may be blunt, screwed from before she was born with issues from her mother's drinking while she was pregnant, I can understand why Krista had some of these issues that she had. And yet it is also undeniable that the way she tortured and tormented Colleen for nearly an hour before finally ending her life completely and keeping that trophy is incomprehensible. Many people have horrific childhoods, born to dependent mothers, and never go on to hurt anyone. My heart goes out to Colleen's mother. So, tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly... Thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 